Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of Christ, Part 44. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We've been thinking about the explanation offered by the myth and legend hypothesis of the empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances of Jesus, and the origin of the Christian faith. And we saw last time that this explanation fails to offer a plausible account of the origin of the disciples' belief that God had raised Jesus from the dead. Now, I wanted to push the discussion a notch further, however. Suppose that the disciples were not simply left to themselves after the crucifixion of Jesus uh, so that the belief in the resurrection would not have any sort of impetus from either Christian, pagan, or Jewish sources to originate. Suppose instead that someone else stole the body of Jesus out of the tomb, and that the disciples, uh, upon finding the tomb empty, were so shocked that this caused them to hallucinate visions of Jesus. Would that have led them to proclaim that God had raised him from the dead. Now, you might object at this point that those hypotheses, like the theft of the body or uh, hallucinatory visions, uh, have all sorts of other problems that would disqualify them. And I um, admit the point, but we're being generous here uh, to the skeptic, and we're supposing, just for the sake of argument, that that's what happened. Would the disciples have then concluded that God had raised Jesus from the dead? Well, again, the answer would seem to be no. You see, hallucinations as projections of the mind cannot contain anything that is not already in the mind. And therefore, given current Jewish beliefs about the afterlife, the disciples, if they were to project hallucinations of Jesus, would have had visions of Jesus in heaven, in paradise, where Jews believed the souls of the righteous dead went uh, until the resurrection at the end of the world. And these sorts of visions would not have caused belief in Jesus' resurrection. At the very most, it would only have led the disciples to believe that Jesus had been assumed into heaven or translated into heaven whence he appeared to them. In the Old Testament, certain figures like Enoch and Elijah were portrayed as not having died, but rather as being translated directly into heaven out of this earthly life. Now, you might say, but they uh, didn't die, whereas in Jesus' case, he did die by crucifixion, and so couldn't have been assumed into heaven. But in fact, assumption into heaven could apply to a person who has died as well. In a non-canonical Jewish book called The Testament of Job, The Testament of Job, chapter 40, the story is told of the translation of two children who were killed in the collapse of a house. The children are killed when the house collapses on them. 
But when the rescuers finally clear away the rubble, their bodies are not to be found. The bodies of the children are missing. Meanwhile, the children's mother sees a vision of the children glorified in heaven where they have been translated by God. God assumed them out of this world into heaven. And it needs to be emphasized that for a Jew, an assumption into heaven is not the same thing as a resurrection. Translation is the bodily assumption of someone out of this world and into heaven. Resurrection, by contrast, is the raising up of the dead man in the space-time universe. They are just different categories in Jewish thinking. So, given typical Jewish beliefs concerning translation and resurrection, the disciples, had they projected heavenly visions of Jesus, would not have preached that God has raised Jesus from the dead. At the very most, the empty tomb and hallucinations of Jesus would have caused them to believe that Jesus had been assumed into glory by God, because that was consistent with Jewish belief. Uh, it would have fit in with the Jewish frame of thought. But they would not have come to think that God had raised Jesus from the dead because this contradicted Jewish belief in at least two fundamental respects, as we saw last week. The resurrection always occurred, you'll recall, after the end of the world and was never of an isolated individual apart from the general resurrection of the people. So the origin of Christianity owes itself to the belief in the earliest disciples that God had raised Jesus from the dead. That belief cannot be plausibly accounted for in terms of either Christian influences, pagan influences, or Jewish influences on the disciples. Even if we grant, for the sake of argument, the implausible hypotheses that the body was stolen and the disciples had hallucinations of Jesus, the origin of belief in Jesus' resurrection still cannot be plausibly explained. Such events would have led the disciples at most to say that Jesus had been translated into heaven where they saw him, but not resurrected from the dead. So the origin of the Christian faith uh, remains inexplicable on this myth and legend hypothesis. Any discussion of the myth or legend hypothesis? Yes. Yeah, I wondered if you have seen the, the popular Netflix show recently, AD Kingdom and Empire, which is, depicts the post-resurrection events. Um, watching it, I thought it's interesting that two things that I, I find somewhat questionable is that they they show Jesus ascending into heaven um, with his disciples as sort of an isolated event with the disciples as opposed to having a crowd of, a crowd of 500 people. And then the Pentecost event itself is kind of more something that happens amongst the disciples. But I was wondering if you had saw, seen that. I haven't seen it. I, I shouldn't be asked about things in popular culture <laughs> because I've so out of touch with some of these things. No, I, I haven't seen it. 
With respect to the ascension, um, it's portrayed in the book of Acts as a mass event. Um, we don't know how many were present there, but there were 120 in the upper room in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. um, and Jesus was meeting with all of these apostles, not just the 12, um, prior to his ascension. So it would have been, as you say, a, a collective event. And Pentecost also is portrayed in the book of Acts as having visual accompaniments like the tongues of fire that rested on the disciples. Mm -hmm. It was more than a mere psychological event. Yeah, and I, I don't want to discourage that series too much because I think that it was produced by Christians, and of course it's yeah. an impossible task to accurately portray everything. So I would say it's an encouraging series that okay. I encourage people to check out, but there were some things that I'm like, oh. Yes, uh, and I think you're right not to be too hard, not to be overly critical of these efforts. But nevertheless, I'm very encouraged that you're listening and watching critically based on what you've learned, because very often you will see these sorts of mistakes um, by these writers who may not have a real firm handle on these events. Any other comment or question? Mike? I was just kind of wondering about what the Jews at the time would have thought about the raising of Lazarus if that could have affected their idea of what, whether it was possible for the raising of the dead. Certainly the idea of what I call revivifications, that is to say the return to the earthly life of a dead person, was known in Judaism. There are examples of it in the Old Testament where these kind of miracles happen. And Jesus performed miracles or is at least reputed to have performed miracles of this sort. Not only Lazarus, but the widow of Nain's son, for example. So that would certainly be something that Jewish beliefs could accommodate. Uh, that someone would be miraculously brought back to life, and to the mortal life. And Lazarus and these other persons would eventually die again. Um, what is Extraordinary would be the belief that the resurrection, in the proper sense of the term, has occurred within history prior to the end of the world and the general resurrection, where we're talking about a resurrection to glory, such as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15. Steve. So just to clarify for me, uh, what you're saying is Christ died, was put in the grave with the shroud of tearing over it, uh, descended into hell, preached the gospel, proclaimed victory, then was translated, uh, was put to a glorified body under the shroud of Turin to do the imprint, uh, folded the linen clothing in the shroud, uh, tomb was opened, walks out, and then he doesn't go to heaven, but he uh, appears among the disciples within walls. So he's been is he translate? He didn't. He didn't go to the father, and maybe he goes to the father before he appears in the group, you know, because uh, he said, told her not to touch him. He had not. Or maybe that was just don't cling to me. That's I must what go. I would I, say. Yeah. And so, so do you think when he was got the glorified body at the resurrection, made the imprint in the shroud of turn, that uh, he was not had not descended to the father, but then did later, and then came back in the. Um, in the midst with the disciples, and then finally he does a final ascension to where he's remained now 
If and I Kevin understand you correctly, yes, that is what I would affirm. If you believe in the authenticity of the shroud, Jesus rises physically and bodily from the tomb in a glorified body, a transformed body that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15 as powerful, glorious, uh, immortal, and spiritual or supernatural. That's the kind of body that Jesus rises from the dead with. But then his assumption into heaven doesn't take place, as you say, until later on in Acts chapter 1. Any other comments? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh-huh. Good morning, doctor. Morning. Um, are there uh, any public records of the Lazarus account or the widow's son uh, being resurrected? Anything from that time that... Do you mean other than in the New Testament? Right. No. Bobby? Hey, Dr. Craig. I missed the past two weeks, so you might have already brought this up, but what about the point that N.T. Wright makes that part of what makes the resurrection account so unique and radical is that in the first century and prior, there were other messianic movements where the leader dies, he was, he was killed off, and the followers of that leader, they didn't, they didn't concoct these stories about, oh, he was resurrected or raised to a new life. Um, they just disbanded, and they found a new leader. How do we... Your introductory that, comment uh, was correct. Okay. I did talk about uh, that last okay. week. Good. I'll, and even quoted N.T. Wright good. Okay. to that effect. He has some very good things to say about this. You remember the quotation where he says, right across the century before Jesus right. and the century after Jesus, we find no messianic right. movement claiming that their crucified Messiah was in fact Messiah after all. There's just no connection between uh, being risen from the dead and being the Messiah. Well, let's go on then to the hallucination hypothesis, which is the next one on our list. You'll remember I said that for Strauss, the postmortem appearances of Jesus were hallucinatory experiences on the part of the disciples. The most prominent proponent of the hallucination hypothesis today is the German New Testament critic Gerhard Ludemann. So how does this hypothesis fare when we assess it by uh, McCullough's six criteria? Well, first, explanatory scope. The hallucination hypothesis obviously suffers from narrow explanatory scope. It attempts to give an explanation of the postmortem appearances, but it says nothing to explain the empty tomb. And therefore, proponents of the hallucination hypothesis must either deny the fact of the empty tomb, including the burial of Jesus in the tomb, or else they have to conjoin some independent hypothesis to the hallucination hypothesis to account for the empty tomb, which makes their theory uh, less simple. It has narrow explanatory scope. Again, the hallucination hypothesis says nothing to explain the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. As we've just seen, in a Jewish context, other more appropriate interpretations of the disciples' experiences than resurrection was at hand. James D.G. Dunn, uh, who is a very prominent uh, New Testament scholar and historical Jesus scholar, has said, 
why did they conclude that it was Jesus risen from the dead? Why not simply a vision of the dead man? Why not visions fleshed out with the apparatus of apocalyptic expectation, coming on the clouds of glory and the like? Why draw the astonishing conclusion that the eschatological resurrection, that is the end time resurrection, had already taken place in the case of a single individual separate from and prior to the general resurrection. Now, as Dunn's last question indicates, the inference, uh, he has been raised from the dead, which sounds so natural to our Christian ears, would have been wholly unnatural to a first century Jew. In Jewish thinking, there was already a category which was perfectly suitable to describe the disciples' uh, supposed experience, namely, Jesus had been assumed into heaven. But that isn't what they proclaimed. They proclaimed instead his resurrection from the dead. I think the best attempt to um, account for the disciples' hallucinatory experiences has been examined by Dale Allison, a prominent historical Jesus researcher. Allison uh, compares the resurrection appearance stories with very fascinating stories of visions of a deceased loved one, which the bereaved sometimes experience. A husband may see a vision of his wife in the kitchen um, after her funeral, or uh, uh, the mother may see a vision of her daughter who has died uh, walking into the uh, apartment. And these visions of the deceased can be extremely real, very uh, palpable and, and physical in their appearance. And Allison speculates, uh, could it be in the case of the disciples that they experienced these sort of bereavement uh, visions and so proclaim Jesus is risen from the dead? Well, as fascinating as these stories are, however, I think that the overriding lesson of these bereavement experiences is that the bereaved do not, as a result of such experiences, come to believe that the deceased person has physically returned to life. Rather, the deceased person is seen in the afterlife. Uh, N.T. Wright observes that for somebody in the ancient world, visions of the deceased would not be evidence that he is alive. It would be evidence that he is dead. And I think that that is very well said. Allison himself admits in the end, and I quote, if there was no reason to believe that his solid body had returned to life, no one would have thought him against expectation resurrected from the dead. Certainly visions of or perceived encounters with a post-mortem Jesus would not by themselves have supplied such a reason. So even given such visionary experiences, belief in Jesus' resurrection from the dead remains unexplained. What about the explanatory power of the resurrection hypothesis? 
it doesn't explain the empty tomb or the origin of the disciples' belief in the resurrection, but what about the post-mortem appearances itself? Well, I think arguably the hallucination hypothesis has weak explanatory power even when it comes to the post-mortem appearances. Let's suppose, for the sake of argument, that Peter was one of those individuals uh, who experiences a vision of a deceased loved one. Would this suffice to explain the resurrection appearance uh, narratives in the Gospels? Well, not really. For the diversity of the resurrection appearances bursts the bounds of anything that is found in the psychological case books. Think about it. Jesus appeared not just one time, but many times. Not uh, at just one locale and circumstance, but in a variety of places and under different circumstances. Not just to one individual like Peter, but to different persons. Not just to individuals, but to various groups of people. And not just to believers, but to unbelievers like James, and even enemies like Saul of Tarsus. Postulating a chain reaction among the disciples won't solve the problem, because people like James and Saul don't stand in the chain. Those who would explain the post-mortem appearances via uh, psychological hallucinations are compelled to construct a composite picture by cobbling together different psychological cases of hallucinations. And that only goes to underline the fact that there's nothing like the resurrection appearances in the psychological case books. Fourth criterion was that the hypothesis needs to be more plausible than rival hypotheses. Ludemann attempts to make the hallucination hypothesis plausible by a psychoanalysis of Peter and Paul. According to Ludemann, both Peter and Paul labored under guilt complexes. Peter because he had denied Jesus three times. Paul because as a Pharisee and Jew, he couldn't live up to the demands of the Jewish law. And so both of them, in order to deal with these guilt complexes under which they suffered, uh, sought release in having hallucinations of Jesus. But is Ludemann's psychoanalysis really plausible? Well, I think there is good reason to doubt. First of all, Ludemann's use of depth psychology is based upon certain theories of Jung and Freud which are highly disputed. Any account that is based on so controversial a uh, foundation as the uh, theories of Freud and Jung, I think, is bound to be implausible. Second, there is insufficient data to conduct a psychoanalysis of either Peter or Saul. Psychoanalysis is difficult enough to carry out with a patient uh, on the psychoanalyst's couch, so to speak, but it is next to impossible 
with historical figures who cannot be personally interrogated. And it's for that reason that the genre of psychobiography is rejected by historians today. Finally, number three, what evidence we do have suggests that Paul, or Saul, the Pharisee, did not, in fact, struggle with a guilt complex under the Jewish law, as Ludemann supposes. Fifty years ago, the Swedish scholar Christoph Stendhal pointed out that Western readers have tended to read uh, Paul through the lenses of Martin Luther's struggle with guilt and sin and to project this onto Paul. But Paul, or Saul, the Pharisee, experienced no such struggle. Stendhal writes, and I quote, contrast Paul, a very happy and successful Jew, one who can say, quote, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless, end quote. Philippians 3.6. That is what he says. He experiences no troubles, no problems, no qualms of conscience. He is a star pupil, the student to get the $1,000 graduate scholarship in Gamaliel Seminary. Nowhere in Paul's writings is there any indication that psychologically Paul had some problem of conscience." End quote. So in order to justify his portrait of the guilt-ridden Saul, Ludemann is forced to interpret Romans chapter 7 in terms of Paul's pre-Christian experience. Remember in Romans 7, Paul exclaims, oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? And uh, Ludemann has to interpret this autobiographically as Paul's pre-Christian uh, experience. But as Hans Kessler, who is a German New Testament scholar, uh, observes, this interpretation uh, of Romans 7 has been rejected by, and I quote, almost all expositors, end quote, since the late 1920s. So Ludemann's psychoanalysis is positively implausible. But that's not all. There's a second respect in which the hallucination hypothesis is implausible, namely in its construal of the resurrection appearances as visionary experiences. Now Ludemann recognizes that his hallucination hypothesis depends upon the presupposition that the post-mortem appearances to the disciples were just like the appearance to Saul on the road to Damascus, namely a visionary experience. He says, and I quote, anyone who does not share this presupposition will not be able to make any sense out of what he has to say. But this presupposition is groundless. You see, many of Paul's opponents in Corinth denied that he was a true apostle. And so Paul is very anxious to include himself, uh, along with the other apostles, as a witness to a resurrection appearance of Jesus. 
So, as John Dominic Crossan explains, and I quote, Paul needs in 1 Corinthians 15 to equate his own experience with that of the preceding apostles. To equate, that is, its validity and legitimacy, but not necessarily its mode or manner. Paul's own entranced revelation should not be presumed to be the model for all the others. Paul, in including himself in the list of witnesses, is trying to um, bring his experience up to the objectivity and the reality of the disciples' experience. He's not trying to drag their experiences down to the level of a merely visionary appearance. And thus, the hallucination hypothesis um, is implausible uh, because of its a tendency to try to reduce all of the postmortem appearances to mere visions. So, both with respect to its psychoanalysis of Peter and Paul, as well as its reduction of the appearances to merely visionary experiences, the hallucination hypothesis, I think, suffers from implausibility. The next criterion to be assessed or weighed is that the hypothesis must be less ad hoc than other hypotheses. And I think that Ludemann's version of the hallucination hypothesis is ad hoc in a number of ways. For example, he just assumes that the disciples fled back to Galilee immediately after Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wants to get rid of the disciples' presence in Jerusalem so that they don't go and check out the empty tomb. Instead, he has them flee back to Galilee immediately after the arrest. He also assumes that the other disciples were prone to hallucinations so that there would be a chain reaction among them. And he assumes, without any evidence, that Paul had a struggle with the Jewish law uh, and a secret subconscious attraction to Christianity, for which there's no evidence. Next, the hypothesis should be disconfirmed by fewer accepted beliefs than rival hypotheses. And again, some of the accepted beliefs of New Testament scholars tend to disconfirm the hallucination hypothesis, at least as Ludemann defends it. Um, for example, it is widely believed that Jesus received a proper burial from Joseph of Arimathea, which Ludemann has to deny. It's widely believed that Jesus' tomb was discovered empty by a group of his women followers on the first day of the week, which Ludemann has to deny. Uh, it is widely accepted that psychoanalysis of historical figures is not feasible. Uh, it's widely accepted that Paul was basically content with his life under the Jewish law as a Pharisee. And again, it's widely accepted that the, the New Testament makes a conceptual distinction between a vision of Jesus and a resurrection appearance of Jesus. And so Ludemann's hypothesis being inconsistent with all of these tends to be disconfirmed by accepted beliefs among New Testament scholars. Finally, does the hypothesis significantly exceed its rivals in fulfilling those first five conditions? 
Well, I think we have to say that insofar as the hallucination hypothesis remains a live option today, it does exceed uh, most of its previous rivals, which are now defunct and no longer defended. And so in that sense, it has outstripped its rivals in terms of meeting these criteria. But the question which remains is whether it outstrips the resurrection hypothesis in meeting those criteria. And that is the question to which we'll turn next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for this time that we've been able to spend together. We thank you for the resurrection of our Lord and for his living presence in our lives. Help us to live in that consciousness, that presence, and with that power throughout the coming week. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.